0: Welcome to the John Harrison Podcast. Do you realize that 70% of people are disengaged at work? I don't think it's an overstatement to call that a tragedy, actually, because it affects the bottom lines of organizations, certainly, but it has a negative impact on all the people that work there, and their families, and the community at large. Nobody's talking about this. Well, on this podcast, we are going to talk about it. So on, on this podcast, we're going to, in future episodes, we're going to talk to a lot of different people, Uh, A lot of different perspectives on this whole uh, concept. But today, we're going to just delve in a little bit more into my background, my history, why that matters, and why this is so important to me, why I'm so passionate about this subject and making the workplace different. Let me just step even back before I became a supervisor, because it really starts back um, when I was growing up. My my dad had his own business. He was an architect slash home builder his office was at our house, so I was around uh, small business most of my childhood. I was the youngest of seven kids. One of my older brothers owned his own plumbing business. I had another brother that was the attorney. He had his own uh, law practice. So I was always around these small family businesses. So when I saw supervision, so to speak, it was different. It was just kind of my mom and dad supervising the seven of us kids, uh, how, my, you know, how my brothers and sisters handled things. And, and we did grow up in an environment where it was about respect for sure. That was what was you know, preached in our household. Uh, work ethic was also preached, but it was also a household uh, filled with a lot of laughter and love. So I had this really good combination of discipline, work ethic, but enjoying uh, our days at home. And even if we were doing chores around the house, whatever, I saw my dad run his business ethically uh, I know customers talked about how good he was at what he did. Uh, technically, he was a great architect, but he, he we were probably rarely charged enough because he just cared about people and wanted to do the right things for them. Uh, so that was a good upbringing for me, so uh, got my degree in economics at Indiana University. Wasn't going to interview with a large company, like I said, because I loved the small town family business type of feel. but. I had seen Caterpillar machines before, I thought they were pretty cool. So I went and interviewed in Pure, Illinois, like I said, um, got that analyst job and really surprised myself that I went to go work for this large company. And as I transitioned into the supervisor role, like I was saying earlier, I, I did flashback to my dad, I flashed back to how he ran things, uh, even in our house or my mom, and I thought, You know, maybe as a supervisor, could I do that? Could I treat people right, but also get the job done, so to speak? Um, So everything that you're hearing on this podcast, everything that you hear when I do uh, in-person training, whatever, is all coming from that real-world perspective. It's not coming from a overly academic approach or a, a normal consultant approach or theoretical. It's really from my upbringing and from my time at Caterpillar, Uh, where I just honed some of these skills. And frankly, a lot of stuff I did not do well. Even though my heart was right as a supervisor, there were some technical things I didn't do very well. And that's going to be discussed in this podcast. Because frankly, a lot of us are not um, prepared for when we get into the workplace. As a staff level person, hourly person, or certainly in leadership, we're just kind of thrown into those positions and we try to figure it out as we go. So I'm thankful for that early background because it did set me up in some ways uh, very well. So when I was that young supervisor, I think I was 29, I had a group of about 12 to 14, depending on the time of the year. And it was always a diverse group. And I had reporting to me, I had male and female, older, younger, different races, et cetera. And I remember that I really thrived on that. I liked having different people on the team, different backgrounds. It just made things more interesting for sure, but, but I also loved the different perspectives that came from that, and that became a theme in my career for years to come. Um, as this young supervisor, I was a little apprehensive at times because I was so young and I didn't know really what I was doing and didn't get a lot of leadership training for sure, which is pretty much the norm in our society. And Kennepillar announced it was going to do a pilot version of an employee satisfaction survey, and I, I'll never forget that being a little apprehensive again, even about that, because I thought, well, how will my people fill out that survey? Will are they happy to work in our group? Are they happy to work for me specifically? And I remember there was this older grouchier supervisor uh, down the hall from me. And he and I were talking about that, the survey coming out. And he, he said, well, I I don't understand why you're so concerned. Why are you so worried about employee satisfaction or employee engagement? And I said, well, I, I just feel like there's a connection to people enjoying what they do feeling emotionally kind of passionate about what they do that connection that it would tie into their work results for sure but i also thought wow they spend 40 or 50 hours here every week it would be nice if if they were engaged during that time and he he shook his head and and kind of made a face and he said no no see we pay them that's their satisfaction when they get a paycheck every couple of weeks or once a month that's what engagement's all about. And and I remember folks even at that point realizing that that wasn't true because I knew that we had paid lots of people to work at Caterpillar. I'd seen people in other aspects of my life that were quote paid to go to work or got benefits but were certainly disengaged. And so I knew there was probably more to the equation than just paying benefits. Fast forwarding, the survey came out and I was blown away and humbled by the results because it came back a hundred percent satisfied. Now, of course, it was a small group, so that's easier to do with, you know, 15 people than 500. But still, I was very humbled by that. And as we get to know each other on this podcast, I hope you'll feel that I was not arrogant about anything that happened in my career. I was humbled by the fact that people enjoyed being at work with me, taking supervision for me, etc. And... Caterpillar was also uh, very interested in those results because they sent a young lady from Human Resources down. I'll never forget this. And she came down and she was very peppy and, you know, fired up. And she said, hey, are are you John Harrison? I said, yes. And she said, I I heard about you. You're you're the guy that got 100% on the employee satisfaction survey. And I remember even then saying, well, no, I didn't get those results. Like that was a collective effort on all of our parts. She said, oh, of course, of course. She said, we just, you know, we want to kind of get into that and understand how you're doing it because it's so amazing. So she told me at that point that she was going to pull each one of my people aside and walk down the hall and have a conversation with them individually in a conference room so she could hear out of their mouths. How was this happening? How are we getting 100 percent employee satisfaction? And for about five seconds, I thought, "Wow, they're they're really taking this seriously, and they're they're so interested in work environment." And then it just kind of you know just clicked in my head, you know, just like, "Oh my gosh, they're doing a human resources investigation." And frankly, they were, and they you know they might have not called it that, but certainly they were investigating because it was so odd for them to see high employee satisfaction scores, and. That really just stuck in my head because if I would have gotten 40%, 50%, 60% on that survey, no one from Human Resources would have gotten involved. They wouldn't have cared. It was average, so no need to you know spend any time on it. The fact that it was a high score made them instantly think, what, that there was something amiss, that I was threatening them to fill it out a certain way. I was bribing them. Um, some intimidation or coercion to get them to fill it out the way I wanted them to. And, and thankfully, I, I passed the investigation. I always joke about I was, I was so broke back in those days, the bribes would have been pretty uh, uninspiring. So certainly wasn't bribery, certainly wasn't intimidation. There was no coercion. They were just answering honestly. And Caterpillar then um, took it very seriously when they saw that. Uh, they realized there was something special going on there, not special about me necessarily, just about the atmosphere. And so there was a vice president at Caterpillar at the time, an older gentleman who I didn't know that well, but he pulled me aside and informed me that he would like me to take a job to lead 400 some people instead of um, you know the 14 or 15 I was managing. And it was so strange for me to hear that because... I didn't see myself as a leader of hundreds of people. They were going to send me to North Carolina, which frankly was like going to Mars in my life. I told you going from Indiana to Illinois was a, was a, a long trip, and now I'm going to North Carolina. And, and they wanted me to become a factory manager. Um, you know, That in itself was crazy because most of the factory managers or factory uh, plant managers I saw were 55 and older. Uh, They were not 30 something. They were grizzled people that had spent most of their lives in the factories. So here I was a financial person, had worked mostly in our corporate office at that point, or one of our large plants, but I wasn't in the factory a lot. I, I certainly was to some extent. I take this job and I go walking into this plant, small town in North Carolina, and I'm introduced as the new plant manager to these folks. And here I am, you know, again, 30, 31 years old and, and you know they did not welcome me with open arms when I walked in there. They instantly had a, an impression of me because of my age and it wasn't good, I can just tell you that. They, <clears throat> excuse me, they assumed I was going to make changes, I think, because as a young person I was probably going to try to show my stuff, so to speak, make my mark, so I'd probably change a lot of things. I think they thought I must have been the CEO's nephew or something like that, because how, how else would someone that age be given such a high level of responsibility? They were certainly seeing that I didn't have a lot of life experience. I had never even worked in that factory. So how could I lead them if I hadn't grown up on the shop floor, so to speak? Now, I understood all of those judgments, but I really think it's a word called prejudging, prejudice. I think they were prejudging me just when I walked in the door that because of my age, because of my lack of experience, et cetera, I was not going to do a good job. The other thing that I heard in that first day I was in the factory, something I'd really never heard of before, was they said, not only is he young, but this guy is a Yankee. And I told you I grew up in Indiana, kind of near Chicago. And I had never heard that term used about me, like, I, I had heard of the New York Yankees because I was a baseball fan. I heard of the song Yankee Doodle Dandy or things like that, but I never thought of that word being connected to me. And I will tell you that their thoughts of me being a Yankee were also not good. It wasn't like they balanced each other out. It wasn't like, well, he's young and that's no good, but at least he's from the North. It, it was a, oh no, here's the second strike against this guy. He's young and he's from the North. Now. Frankly, what they saw in me coming from the North, they assumed I was going to treat people a certain way. They assumed uh, I was going to be rude, that I was going to be arrogant. I heard things like ungodly. I heard all kinds of words in my first day, frankly, and felt it that they were not happy for me being from that part of the country. Now, I've lived in Arkansas for 10 years now, and I've seen the flip side of that. I've seen Northerners in the United States have... Uh, preconceived notions about Southerners. We've heard terms like redneck or backwards or slow or whatever. And, and I've found that Arkansans don't like that uh, stereotype put upon them, of course. But yet I've heard Arkansans make stereotype comments about people from New York or California or wherever. It's just baked into our human DNA, unfortunately. So So here I was walking into this facility and generally, no one was happy that I was there. I was already nervous and intimidated by being such a young factory manager, but now I had that other um, level of complexity you know, thrown in my face. And I look back now, and I'm really happy for that time because it, it allowed me to see what prejudice looks like in a different way in the work environment, and, and I, it, it, it helped guide how I led people from that point on. Now... Three years later, I left that facility to move back to Illinois for another job with Caterpillar. And and when I left, they had a going away party for me. And there were people literally crying that I was leaving. I was emotional that I was leaving. And that's not because I'm fantastic. That's because they saw a different culture, a different work environment, and it was working. The, the numbers at the facility got much better. Um, the people enjoyed being there. Of course, it was still a job, but but they all had to change too for us to be excellent. And again, I still barely knew what I was doing at that point, but I did start to see the beginnings of what would become the VIP way. I saw, a, you know, raising of expectations that we needed to train people better, and and that passion needed to be flowing out of people more often. We, we were building products at that facility that not only served Caterpillar machines, but they were also used by the US military. And this was back in the desert storm days. And I just didn't feel the right passion on the shop floor from people and our leaders about how important the work was that we were doing. But that, that had to be fostered uh, by us training people differently, talking about this kind of stuff holding people accountable to their behaviors and performance. So it really was uh, the beginnings of the VIP way there, I would say. Um, there's one story that I think about uh, with that facility. There was a, an older woman that worked on the shop floor. Her name was Jessie. And Jessie had no time for me, I will tell you that. Uh, just again, maybe because of my age or being from the North, she had spent her whole life in this little town in North Carolina. And she literally would not make eye contact with 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 the first six months I was there. She wouldn't look my way, no smiles, nothing. And she was actually a union representative. It was a union facility, and she was one of the union reps. And she just wore that on her sleeve. You could tell it. She was kind of anti-management, certainly anti-John Harrison. And as time went on, in the first three, four, five, six months, I think she started to see some change. She started to understand me a little bit more. She saw her fellow co-workers uh, warming up to me and this whole culture idea. And it, all of a sudden, the ice melted away from Jessie. And I would walk by her little workstation. She was a quality person on the shop floor. And she would be showing me pictures of her grandkids. And she'd be telling me stories of her childhood in this little town in North Carolina. and. And she would ask me about my childhood. And, and here I was the plant manager. She was an hourly person, let alone a union rep. And just a dramatic change in her face and her heart and her warmth. And she she left uh, the facility a little bit after I did. When I went back to Illinois, she had retired. and. We stayed in touch, but then one day I got a phone call um, in Peoria, Illinois, where I was back with Caterpillar headquarters, and Jesse was on the phone and she said, John, I, my daughter and I, and at this point, Jesse's probably 72, 73 years old. She said, my daughter and I are going on a bus trip uh, to see all of the United States. We're just, it's a long kind of two or three week tour. We're seeing a lot of the country and we're actually doing an overnight stop in Peoria, Illinois, of all places. And she said, is there any chance that we could have breakfast on the Friday morning that we're going to be there? We get in late Thursday night, and then we're leaving Friday morning. Could we meet for breakfast? And, and my heart just sunk because I had a work uh, breakfast I had to be at that Friday morning. And I suggested I cannot meet you for breakfast at the time that you suggested. I said, but what time are you, are you leaving? She said, well, we're leaving like at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I said, well, what if I meet you at, at 6 in the morning? And she said, really? I said, yes. So I met her at the hotel, met, met her daughter, who I'd never met. And we're hanging out at the hotel, barely you know, even, even able to have breakfast at 6 o'clock at morning at the Hampton Inn or wherever she was. And I said, I've got you know some time. Let's just catch up. So we're talking and laughing. She's showing me pictures and telling me about her trip. She's asking about my new job. And we were reminiscing about the early days at the plant in North Carolina. And she goes to get on the bus. And she gives me a hug, and she gives me a hug where I have to, like, peel her fingers off of my arms. And she's kind of got a tear in her eye, and she says, John, can I just tell you something? And I said, of course. She said, I've worked for about 60 years of my life. I started working at my father's grocery store when I was 11 or 12, and I've worked ever since till I just recently retired. And she said you know those those two or three years when we were together in north carolina she said those were not only my two or three best work years of those 60 she said i think those were the two or three best years of my life just in general and she starts crying and she was making me cry and she just said i can't thank you enough for everything that you did during those two or three years now again I think of that Jesse since passed away that is not about me because yes she and I built a relationship but if the other 399 people in that facility didn't get on board with that culture I don't think her relationship with me would have been the way it was I don't think she would have enjoyed those 3 years I think that's a really a living testimony of what the work environment can do to people's personal lives so yes the plant got better our production was better, our safety was better, our quality was better. Of course, Caterpillar was happy with all of that. But I don't remember a lot about the daily production numbers at that facility, but I will never forget Jesse. And that's kind of what happens, I think, if you invest in this type of culture and if you as an employee uh, embrace change in the work environment. After that, I got sent around the world uh, for the same purposes. Caterpillar had facilities all over the world um, some of which that were struggling. They were not hitting their production numbers. They weren't hitting their quality numbers. Safety was, was not going well. And, and I was just again humbled to be that person to, to do that. So I got asked to go to Melbourne, Australia for three years to run a facility there. We were, we were involved in the building of $3 million off-highway mining trucks there. Um, in a huge mining part of the world in Australia. And all of Asia was a growth area for Caterpillar at this point. So again, humbled to be asked to be thrown into that situation. And I saw the same thing happen in Australia. I saw people that, when I walked in the door, they saw me as a young American person. They had issues with me. They were skeptical of me. But in that Australian facility, the same thing happened that happened in North Carolina. People eventually saw the impact of a better work environment they had to change their ways frankly we had to part with some people that were not on board with that work culture and that's going to happen when this when this gets underway but that's okay Uh, everyone benefits in that situation too so the numbers got better our employee satisfaction scores got better but i saw people's personal lives get better in melbourne australia just like in that little tiny town in north carolina cutting to the chase then i've got i got moved to tokyo japan uh, caterpillar has around at that point had around a hundred thousand employees and about ten thousand of them were employed in japan two large manufacturing facilities at one outside of tokyo one in the western part of the nation and but japan was actually kind of our our asian headquarters at that point so we had finance people and marketing people and all of that and, and I was a managing director there, uh, along with some other folks that had that title. And we were responsible for 10,000 people uh, as executives there. And I, I can't even fathom that, right? Because, again, here was a kid from a small town, Indiana. Now I'm living about as far away from the United States as I can get. And I saw the same thing happen in Japan, right? There were... People skeptical of me because of my nationality and still my age at that point. Very different cultures uh, in Japan versus the United States. But the same thing, right? We, the, the culture was taking hold, it was a big change. And, and again, a story that I think of in Japan is really not even about what happened at work one day. But Jennifer and I uh, decided that we would have some of these other managing director, executive level people to our home. We've always done that. Uh, Jennifer is um, just an amazing uh, person when it comes to hospitality and cooking and and just making our our home a sanctuary for other people. And she said, why don't we have those, your Japanese counterparts come to our house for dinner? I said, sure. So I'd probably been there maybe six months or not, maybe eight or nine months at that point. So I asked my admin assistant to please send out this email to all of those, um, my Japanese peers to please they and their spouses to come to our house. Now they were all male, and I said to my admin, please invite them and their spouses. Here's the email invitation. And she told me at the time, she said, Harrison-san, so in Japan they don't say mister, they say san at the end of your name. So she said, Harrison-san, that's very sweet, but I'm just going to let you know that none of these uh, gentlemen's wives will come to your house for dinner. And I said, really? And she said, no, just not our custom. Uh, if they do a work function, first of all, they don't even generally go to people's homes to begin with. Uh, again, a lot of the homes are small in Japan. So that's not a normal thing. She said they would prefer to go out to eat, uh, but they probably will come to your house, but but none of the wives will come. And I said, no, I understand. I hope, um, you know, that wouldn't be offending to anybody. But I said, I, I would still like to leave the email just as I suggested. Let's I would just like to see what happens," she said. "Okay," and she kind of gave me this look, like you you just don't get it, and this is not going to you know go end well. So the email went out, and it was the next day, I believe. And one of the older uh, older of this group, he was probably in his sixties at the time, came to my office, and he was holding my email. He said, "Harrison, son, um, I just wanted to talk about this email about this event at your house," and I said, oh, I understand. I said, um, you know, my admin had talked to me about that. If, if it's uncomfortable for you, and he kind of cut me off, he said, uh, absolutely, yes. It's not normal that we would come to someone's house for a, an after work event like this. It's certainly not normal that we would bring our wives. But he said, I just want to say in your case, we want to do that. We, we want to respect this invitation and we're all coming and we're all bringing our wives and it always still kind of makes me emotional when i think about that because it wasn't i mean i was much younger than these guys and very different culture and the fact that they agreed to do that is a memory i will never forget and jennifer will never forget excuse me so they come to our house and we are laughing and we had a little dog at the time and they're playing with our dog and they're getting on the floor and they're talking to grace our youngest daughter and it was one of the most special nights of my career. And I think that still is a, only happened because of what was happening in the work environment. I think they saw hopefully my competence. I hope they saw that I was helping the business, but they also saw my heart. And, and they just jumped on board with that. And they talk about that night kind of to this day, that it was something that special. So yes, the numbers got better and all of that. But I promise you that this VIP way that we're gonna talk about in future podcasts, I I want you to pay attention because I think not only will it help your business if you're an owner or a CEO, but I think if you're an employee, your 40 or 50 or 60 hours are gonna look very different. Getting to Arkansas. So as we wrap this up, um, I got asked in 2009 to go from Tokyo to Arkansas to Little Rock to open up a new caterpillar plant in this city. It was the largest facility Caterpillar had opened in the US in probably some 50 years. So again, this concept of me being humbled happens again. I'm asked to, to lead this new facility. It was a big deal for Arkansas at the time also because we were bringing 700 jobs at the time in a in the time when the economy, just everyone in the United States was struggling, but certainly in Arkansas. So it was a good marriage uh, between Caterpillar and the state of Arkansas. So now I'm not walking into a facility that needs to be fixed, so to speak, or have the culture change. I'm, a, I'm actually able to establish a new culture. And that really was a dream job of mine at the time. 2009-10, uh, we kind of get the culture up and running. We start getting into production. And then I walk away. April of 2011, I I quit. And it's important that I say the word quit, because that's exactly what happened. I didn't retire. I was too young to retire from a business point of view, from a Caterpillar point of view, I couldn't have retired. My years and age of service didn't meet the the minimum requirements to retire. I didn't quit because I was disgruntled. Uh, I loved Caterpillar. I still love Caterpillar. I met Jennifer at Caterpillar. We are a yellow blood family. Uh, Caterpillar's colors are yellow and if if you cut our three girls open, you're going to see yellow blood. It wasn't that I was disgruntled with the company. It wasn't that I was independently wealthy and didn't have to work anymore, none of that. So why did I leave? Well, actually I left because of a faith calling and I was feeling blessed and humbled by everything that had happened in my life up to that point, really going back to my childhood. And I felt like I didn't deserve that. I felt like there was some reason I was blessed like that. Jennifer felt the same way. Uh, matter of fact, she had been kind of praying and thinking about this change in our lives about a year before i mentioned it and that was pretty amazing that she left that um, didn't tell me about her feelings because she wanted that to come um, from my heart and so anyway some of you that are on this podcast understand what i'm talking about and you get it and it may be affecting you emotionally to hear that story Other people may think I'm the biggest idiot that ever walked on the planet. Like, why would you leave this executive life and executive pay, give up retirement and everything that I did? So my point on on this podcast is not to try to convince you of that or to convert you or to talk about faith. But I'm not going to lie to you on this podcast. I'm going to tell you why I did what I did, and it was only because of that reason. So so I left, and we were uh, attending a church in Little Rock at the time, that was very diverse, Um, it was a non-denominational church. The congregation was about 40% white, 40% black, 20% Hispanic and Asian, economically crazy diverse. We had homeless people and, and wealthy people going to the same church. And probably half Republican, half Democrat, and especially nowadays, people think that's the craziest diversity in the church outside of the the race and the e- economics. So we were doing some things through that church. I've, I've never been a pastor or anything like that. I, so I was leading a nonprofit through the church, doing some things like that. So this concept of me helping out in the workplace really wasn't even birthed yet, but but it was always tugging me at the back of my heart and my mind. So at some point, I knew that this calling was going to tie into the workplace. So so we started a company called VIP2, and that stood for values-driven, informed, passionate people. That's the two with the P. So I didn't want to be a consultant. I didn't love consultants when I was at Catapult, to be honest. I didn't want to be just a theoretical, academic type of help. I thought maybe we could take this real-life story that I just kind of give you a snapshot into and carry that message to go help all levels of employees to look at their 40 and 50 hours every week, that look at it differently. Yes, help the bottom line of companies, but help these people enjoy those 40 or 50 hours because now they're taking it home, right? They're taking it home to their, their kids and their grandkids and their spouses and their neighborhoods and their churches and their motorcycle clubs and anything they do after work. I thought maybe part of my calling is to do something about that because I frankly don't hear politicians talking about those 40 or 50, 60 hours. I don't think anybody's really talking about it and doing it well. Um, so I thought maybe as a non-consultant, maybe we could get this message out. And that could include training people differently and and getting information uh, to organizations to understand this culture. And, and really something like this podcast, just to share this message with those that want to hear it, that maybe we can you know, make the workplace a, a different Um, oasis Uh, and I don't think we think of it that kind of word we think of it as something we have to do as opposed to while I'm here maybe this could be a a place for uh, relationships to grow for the business to get better yes but so that but now when we go home after those 40 50 hours we're in much better position to deal with other human beings in our lives so right now we're going through a transition of calling it VIP two again values driven informed passionate people to John Harrison, and that's hard for me to, in some extent because I, I never wanted this organization to be about me. But in talking to some of our uh, stakeholders and people that we work with, they thought it would be an easier inroad for people to remember John Harrison, whether that's on this podcast or if I go to speak somewhere, a website, whatever. But but the concepts aren't changing at all. We are going to be talking about about values and why that's so important personally and why organizations need to adopt them. Uh, Information. People need to be informed. They need to be communicated with. It's hard to be passionate if we don't know what's going on. And we want employees, by the way, in our organizations that want to be informed. They are embracing that, um, embracing training. But we're going to talk a lot about passion because we love that word passion. We think about it with our f- kids and our, our parents and our siblings. We're passionate about our loved ones. We're passionate about food. We're passionate about the arts. We're passionate about sports. But the, but the word passion doesn't get uh, thrown around the workplace very often. So, so the, the V and the I and the P, that's not going to change. It's, but it's going to be referred to now as the VIP way. And we'll talk more about that in a future episode. But we've got a, a diverse group of team members that have joined the John Harrison team over the years. They're all real folks. They, they are not academics and, and consultants. They are people that have lived and breathed the workplace as staff-level people, as supervisors. They've seen the frustrations and felt it that all of you have that are listening. And, and they help uh, get this message out. And, we're, and I'm just honored to be um, and have that team around me and just blessed that they have joined the mission, so to speak. So I, I hope this gave you a better understanding of who I am, where I came from, and why this is so passionate to me and our team. Everything I talk about, again, is something I've learned from my past, good or bad. Uh, We're not just a team of trainers and consultants, as I mentioned. These are people that live and breathe this. Uh, We've been in your shoes. We hope this podcast will bless you. We hope you tell others about it. Uh, We're anxious to have you join us on this mission. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions or thoughts about today's episode or even ideas for a future episode, you can contact us through our website at johnharrisonvip.com or follow us on any of our social media platforms.